Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, It is great to have all of you here. Hopefully you're enjoying a cup of coffee uh, this morning and uh, getting ready to learn uh, on our topic today that will be presented by uh, by Claire Riot, who's one of our outstanding uh, uh, pain and palliative care medicine team members. And she will be introduced by our own Dr. Bill Zemsky. Be- before we started, just a couple of things that I, that I think are, are important to mention. So the first one is a happy Diwali uh, to our colleagues and friends. Uh, it, it was, a, I think the festival was yesterday, but I believe it's a couple of days, the festival of lights, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice celebration, a joyful celebration. So I, again, I just want to recognize that it's always good to have you know, the positive elements of, of our life, really, really important. Um, I also want to thank, again, I've done this now for, uh, for all the Grand Rounds, but I want to thank again our frontline team members that are taking care of so many kids. Uh, this morning we had, uh, once again, 17 uh, borders, with uh, most of them with RSV. This has been a, a, a trend that has continued and it's not letting up, and it's really challenged all of us, but everyone has responded beautifully. Uh, the frontline and the, and the emergency department with our therapists, uh, our, our MAs, uh, our unit clerks, the, the residents, the fellows, the attendings, and, and all of our nurses that are really providing care uh, in a very, very busy setting. Uh, and also our hospital medicine team combined, which really has had uh, on an average uh, 55 up to 60 patients on any given day, very challenging uh, with, you know, for the kids. And of course, you know, we got to take care of our little patients that are that are suffering right now with this uh, surge, massive surge of RSV, uh, which is probably not letting up anytime soon. Uh, the, the PICU as well has been very, very busy. So, so to our ICU colleagues uh, and nursing teams, thank you for what you're doing. And I also want to thank our faculty across the board because they have volunteered uh, individuals in different specialties that normally are not in the emergency department. They've stepped up and volunteered to provide the care. So I want to thank you. And others that are not necessarily volunteering to be there, but have volunteered their services to support, including our, our uh, information services, Rochelle DeMayo and her team that really have facilitated learning for those that want to be in there and then making sure the electronic health record is easier to use. So, so again, thank you. Hang in there. We will pull through this. Uh, be not afraid. I mean, this is something we, we know how to do, and uh, I guarantee you that we'll come out of at the other end. Uh, I, I want to say that two, the two individuals that are here today, uh, uh, both Bill and Claire, actually both volunteered to be in that front line. Uh, and once I bought Dr. Zemsky a stethoscope, which he hadn't, I uh, didn't own one, that's what he told me. Uh, although I know he uses it in the clinic, uh, he probably has it there. Uh, he was also serving, and, and Claire was uh, uh, up all night in admitting patients as well in, in her capacity. So thank you both for, for doing that. It's really exemplary. And I, I just, you know, when, when we have crisis like this, it's, uh, I'm always uh, so proud of, of Connecticut Children's and our community and the pediatricians and everyone who steps in. And, and provides the care. Lastly, I want to thank the folks in, in Zone C in our, in our behavioral health unit in the ED. We've had numbers of about 30 to 35 on, on an average, I think 32 this morning, which is the other challenge that we've had. And uh, so the combination of those factors really uh, it brings out the best in our team members. So again, to all of you, uh, hang in there. Uh, we do have Halloween on, on Monday, which is, and we have reverse trick-or-treating. And so hopefully all of you will, you will dress. I think somebody was looking for a Bill Zemsky a costume, and I, I think it's now a bestseller somewhere. So, so Bill. So, I'm going to ask Bill to uh, to introduce Claire. Bill is, as you know, is our associate chair of research. It's also head of the division of pain and palliative care. Uh, one of the world's experts in pain medicine, and somebody who who, who I trust and and I confide and work with very closely uh, in his associate chair role and as a friend. So, Bill, always great to have you. Uh, and I'm asking to introduce Dr. Rio. So what I could have really used help with is which end of the stethoscope to put where, but uh, I finally figured that out. But uh, 
I think this is a time given how how challenging it's been for everybody to really be compassionate. And I think nothing displays more compassion than our palliative medicine team. And before I introduce Claire, I just want to mention the other members of that team, Carrie Moss, Taryn Hamry, Mallory Fassa, Mary Fran McGeary, who just work tirelessly every day with really a tiny staff to care for kids, but also to care for the folks who are caring for the kids, which is really an important part of palliative medicine and an essential part. And they do that day in and day out. And, and I'm really uh, in awe of their uh, performance. Uh, so I do want to introduce Claire. Claire Ariette uh, has, uh, she grew up in Rhode Island, uh, went to college in Delaware and, and medical school in Philadelphia, but she's really been here essentially since then. She came and did uh, residency here, was a chief resident, and then stayed for an extra year to work as kind of a nighttime hospitalist, and then went off to Michigan to train in palliative medicine. And then we were able, uh, luckily, just at the uh, crucial time in our development to get Claire back here as our second palliative medicine physician. And she also uh, works in our pain uh, division as well, uh, seeing patients there. And I think compassion is really a great word to describe Claire. In fact, I, I, I get occasionally get some comments from parents who she sees on the pain side. And, and these families are often struggling uh, as well. No, they don't feel heard. Uh, they don't feel believed. And, and some of the comments I get from parents about Claire is what an amazing listener is, how much better they felt after their appointment. So I'm, I'm really impressed with how she ha uh, brings her that palliative medicine uh, uh, approach to everything she does and really helps our parents and families. I, I'm also really impressed with Claire because her shoes almost always match her outfit. She's got the most amazing collection of shoes and somebody who's really partial to nice socks. I can really appreciate this, but she's really a, a wonderful young woman and a young physician, and I'm happy to introduce her today. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for those kind words. Um, and it's really quite surreal for me to be standing here, um, having started my residency at Connecticut Children's back in 2011, um, taking a kind of brief stint away in Michigan, but uh, this really feels my, my home. Um, and so to be presenting to all of you is a, a wonderful um, privilege. So thank you for, for having me. And as Bill said, I work in both the um, pain and you know palliative realms um, in my role. Um, and the topic today can really be applied in, in both settings um, and across different disciplines as well. Um, and so this is something that I've grown more interested in as I've met more patients on both the pain and, and palliative sides, both inpatient and outpatient. Um, and so my hope today is to share some of what um, I've learned and you know, be able to be a resource um, for what can be a very challenging condition. So I'll be talking today about um, neuroirritability. Um, and my only disclosure is that I do discuss, as with much of pediatrics, um, the use of off-label uh, medications. But I wanted to start by just going through a few cases as examples of the types of patients that we see in a variety of settings. And my thought would be that some of these you know, different types of patient scenarios would be familiar um, to those of you who are, are able to listen today. So we'll start in the, the NICU, um, where you're paged to see a seven-week-old who has a complex medical history, um, was born very premature, um, and you know, had significant resuscitation. Um, he was initially on the jet ventilator and then eventually switched to, to conventional, um, but complications included hydrocephalus, um, status post a, a shunt, as well as bacteremia. Um, and he's really just been very uncomfortable, inconsolable, the notes will say. Um, and, you know, the team is struggling with how to help him, you know, be more comfortable. And so that's the big question um, for that consultation. Another case is for a slightly older child, 14-month-old um, female. Um, she has a history of in utero substance exposure, um, very extensive um, and you know, unfortunately, um, though she was treated for NAS initially, even after that kind of acute period, remains very agitated and, and hard to, to calm um, in kind of the standard, you know, strategies that you might try. Um, she was started on gabapentin, was seen by neurology and, and different specialists um, without a clear, um, you know, reason for 
this behavior that she was demonstrating. Um, she would have significant outbursts lasting up to several hours at a time. Um, and, you know, they were pretty distressing, I think, both for the patient, certainly, as well as for her, her foster parents who were caring for her. Um, you know, lots of sleepless nights and, and tears, um, I think, from, from them as well, just trying to figure out how to help her. And then the last case, um, slightly older, um, is a patient um, who I met when she was nine, um, history of autism and intellectual disability, um, difficulty with verbalizing her pain, although she could say, you know, yes or no to certain questions. Um, she would clutch her belly at times, leading, you know, to different GI referrals um, to try to determine, you know, whether there was an, an underlying pathology there, um, but her workup also um, was normal. She has periods of screaming, um, especially after meals, um, leading to some self-harm behaviors, which are obviously distressing. Um, she has an EEG just to make sure there are no seizures and different um, workup, and everything there is reassuring as well. So what can we do for these kids? You know, and I'd like to highlight as hard as, as it is for us as providers to tackle some of these cases, um, it can be really challenging for parents as well. Um, and I think sometimes just sitting and taking the time to, to learn the history, be there with the families can, can help to, um, you know, I think calm some of their fears and to, to sit with them and say, this is hard, um, but I'm here with you. And these are the things that we can try. Um, and for many of them, there isn't a, you know, immediate relief with the interventions that we talk about. It's often a, a long time, um, especially in, you know, the, the setting where families are, are hoping to, to have a fix right away, um, you know, can take weeks to months sometimes to, to really see an improvement, um, which can be a hard time for, for families. So trying to counsel them through that and be available um, can be really, really critical. So my objectives today are to discuss the evaluation and potential causes of discomfort um, secondary to a, an unidentifiable source, um, to the, review the tools that we often use um, depending on age, um, as well as different communication strategies, and then to review some of the management and ongoing care, both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic options. And I'd like to highlight initially, too, that this is an area where there is not a a lot of data to go on. Um, and I think even since I first you know, started in my current role now over five years ago, there has been an improvement and more data that continues to come out. Um, but a lot of this is based on you know, anecdotal um, reports and you know, really input from colleagues um, and you know, talking at different meetings and, and working together to try to find strategies. Um, but overall, you know, it's not as simple as you know, looking up um, you know, which medication to use for, you know, an infection or something along those lines. We often have to, um, to try multiple different things and, and, you know, parents are often on that journey with us and, and are willing to, to, you know, try um, multiple medications to, to find something helpful. Um, but I want to highlight how, you know, important this article has been, I think, in both my improvement in, in my comfort with some of the strategies that we use, um, as well as just highlighting in a really important way how overlooked sometimes these symptoms can be, especially um, with children who aren't able to communicate using the, the classic words and cues that we often rely on. So I just want to start by saying, what is neuroirritability? I recognize we have you know, an audience of a, a variety of different providers um, who may or may not come across this very often. Um, but I think most of you probably have, even if it's not something at the, the forefront of, of what you do. Um, but these are really you know, persistent or recurrent episodes um, with you know, pain behaviors um, when you've already evaluated kind of potential sources that can be um, commonly suggested. And, and so um, this is a diagnosis often of, of exclusion, um, suggesting that the CNS is the, the source. Um, and they're often multiple different conditions that patients are being treated for as well, whether it's seizures or GI issues or different pieces, and that can sometimes muddy the waters in terms of how to assess and treat. Um, and there's also polypharmacy for a lot of these children, and so trying to find that balance without obviously making the symptoms more significant. And so I think it's helpful also to just go through a couple of definitions that can come across. Most of us are obviously familiar with asking, you know, patients about pain or, you know, what they're experiencing. 
you know, the Wong Baker basis scale can be a great tool, especially for children who are either upset or nervous or, you know, don't have the same ability to describe what they're experiencing. So even just pointing, you know, at the different faces can be helpful. But pain is defined most recently as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, and I think that the addition of the resemblance to actual damage is really important because we see so many patients where an x-ray is normal, an MRI is normal, you know, the physical exam may appear normal, um, but that doesn't mean that the pain or the discomfort isn't there. And that's one thing that, as Bill was alluding to in the pain world, but in palliative too, we, we really try to reinforce with families that we hear them and see that pain um, and are there to, to treat with them. And then a couple of other, you know, kind of distinguishing uh, definitions would be that of agitation, um, which we, you know, see marked in charts oftentimes, especially, you know, nursing documentation will either say a patient is agitated or irritable. Um, and there is overlap kind of between those, you know, different terms. Either way, I think it's, it's this abnormal response and a sensitivity to stimulation um, in, a, in a negative way, you know, an, an unpleasant state of arousal. And so something that certainly can be distressing to witness both as a parent or as a provider, um, and certainly for the patient themselves. And so before we, you know, go into some of the parts of, of the evaluation, um, I think it's helpful to review what types of discomfort do we rule out first, you know, and oftentimes by the time I'm seeing a patient, they've already, you know, been seen by a primary care provider or the hospital service referred for other specialty care. Um, but I think it's helpful to have kind of sometimes a new lens and just look at what else could be causing the discomfort and in doing the appropriate evaluation. There may be labs that need to be done or imaging, ultrasound, different pieces. And so often we'll collaborate with other providers to do the thorough workup um, and, and really rule out any you know, conditions that would be treated more specifically. And then, as I mentioned, the evaluation, obviously the history is a really critical piece to this. And, you know, I'm fortunate in my division to have more time, I think, than many providers might um, to really just sit and, and hear what, you know, parents may be able to share in terms of the story and what they're experiencing and the, the degree of workup. And I think that can be a really helpful time to get to know the patient too and just witness their behavior from your perspective. Sometimes we have patients who, you know, the, the family will review what they're experiencing at home and then in the office, they may be more comfortable or just because of the new setting may not demonstrate that same behavior in front of you. But I think, you know, with technology today, we often get videos from families, you know, after the fact, you know, saying this is actually what we're experiencing um, or photos or different pieces. And that can be really helpful to get a better sense of what's going on. We certainly do, you know, our own physical exam, trying to rule out any causes that can be um, identified from the hair tourniquets that you classically hear of or, or fractures or different pieces, you know, especially with some of our patients who have um, cerebral palsy or different joint concerns. Um, they may have, you know, types of dislocations or, or um, other issues that, that need to be more evaluated or, you know, reach out to orthopedics or other colleagues as well. So we do a lot of collaboration to make sure we're, you know, evaluating to the best of our ability. And then, as I mentioned, most of the time, you know, families, by the time they come to us, have had, you know, significant labs already, but just to make sure that the standard labs have been done kind of more recently. And then imaging studies as well, um, sometimes an abdominal ultrasound or x-ray, occasionally a bone scan if you're concerned about um, occult fractures. There may be EEGs that are warranted based on the type of behavior that the patient is demonstrating or if they have a, a history of seizures in the past just to reevaluate, you know, could there be um, an underlying cause there too. GI often will also pursue additional um, testing or endoscopy um, to rule out, you know, any of the inflammatory conditions, IBD, different pieces, and so we work with them um, closely as well. But as I mentioned, this is often, you know, a diagnosis that we come to after all of these pieces have been evaluated and, you know, there's nothing that you know, we can point to specifically and say this is exactly what's causing this behavior. And those who have you know, neurological impairment, um, and also those with multiple medical technologies are at greater risk as well. And so what scales can we use in order to have some 
uh, more objective measures. Um, and, you know, certainly scales are helpful more in trending the, the patterns of the behavior versus giving us an exact point of intervention or, it, you know, we don't use that necessarily to say when to start or stop a, a medication. Um, but it, it does help in some settings to see, oh, did their NPAS score go down after we started a particular medication? Um, so it can be helpful on, on that side. So we often in the NICU will use the NPAS score um, and on the floors um, we'll use the, the RFLAC and I'll show you those in a second. Um, it can be very difficult to isolate kind of irritability. Um, you know, the scales are an indirect measure of that. And they also vary from user to user as with many of the other scales that, um, that you're familiar with. But again, you know, if we can have more than one user look at it over time, it can still be a helpful data point. Sadly, more recently, we are seeing a, an increase in patients who've had in utero substance exposure. Um, and so for these patients, we also do trend the Finnegan or Watt scores um, to help guide our management as well. And so that can be an additional scale based on what the, the clinical scenario is. So here's just to give you a sense of the, the NPAS scale um, that we use. You know, obviously lots of, of different um, pieces there and the nurses become very accustomed to rating these different behaviors. But I think it's helpful just to keep in mind that that's one tool that we can use, um, especially in the NICU setting. And then this is the, the RFLAC. And so this is an adapted version of the standard FLAC scale. Um, this is for nonverbal or intellectually disabled children, you know, who aren't able to use some of the same um, cues that we might look for in a typically developing child. And one of the barriers that we come across at times is that the cues can be subtle and that's why there is some, you know, variability among users as well. You know, the degree of grimace or level of crying, different, different pieces can be changed from, from person to person. We hope to have a score under three. And if you are really struggling with trying to find a, a balance for a patient, you know, sometimes we will have the nurses um, or more than one nurse score at the same time to get a, a sense. The parent input is also can be really important in this piece or a primary nurse who's had the patient, you know, multiple times um, to help compare, you know, was this how they were earlier in the week or is this, you know, an improvement or are we still in a really difficult spot? And so as with, you know, many different conditions, we often start most conservatively first on the non-pharmacologic treatment here. You can probably have recommended in your offices and, and for different reasons, you know, whether it's just to, to soothe a healthy baby, um, some of these tips can still come in handy. But I think they can be applied um, in a variety of settings and, and sometimes Though they may not remove symptoms altogether, can they, you know, take them down a notch? Um, and so, and especially when combined, you know, some families find it helpful um, to work through some of these different pieces. Music or white noise, um, which we, our team actually has, uh, and Child Life also has some, some white noise machines. Um, if that's something that would be helpful, um, we're happy to help with, or at home, obviously, families often have these too. Changing positioning um, can be can be helpful for some patients. Some babies or even older children can be stimulated by, you know, noise or light. And so trying to reduce some of those inputs um, can be helpful, whether, you know, it's turning down the lights, closing the shades in the NICU setting. If they're in an isolate, you know, the NICU does a great job of, you know, covering those isolates. So it's kind of dim um, and, and a bit quieter. Uh, and so those are, you know, a couple of small things. Um, the power of touch is, you know, really important, um, whether it's a parent providing massage or if the child is inpatient, we have a massage therapist who are part of the pain and palliative team that can be consulted, going all the way down to the NICU babies to, and then to our older children as well. So that's um, a great resource for a lot of our families. We get amazing feedback on the power of the massage. PT and OT can also be, you know, really instrumental in helping to, you know, calm down some of the the sensitivity um, that our patients may be experiencing. Um, weighted blankets are also um, a, a strategy that can be helpful for um, a lot of families. We have them both through child life in the inpatient setting, and then many families have them at home. Um, obviously, these are for the 
the slightly older children and we have a variety of sizes um, and can counsel those on, or counsel families on, on how to, to go about purchasing those as well. Um, and they do have newer um, fabrics now too. So, you know, they used to be very, um, you know, heavy, obviously, and hard and difficult for, you know, your skin to breathe. Um, but now they've come up with, you know, some new types of fabrics that are much more comfortable for, for patients. Um, and, and so that can be another strategy that, that some patients find helpful. And then obviously, you know, holding, whether it's parents, ideally, if they're present, um, or we also have our volunteers um, who can, can hold or read um, or be present with families. Um, and that's, you know, really something that is amazing that we are able to offer that again. I know that it was on pause during um, the, the height of the pandemic, but it's been great to see the volunteers back in with the, the patients, because um, I think that makes a big difference as well for families who aren't able to be here um, all the time with their children. So for some patients, you know, especially in older children, um, there are some behavioral options as well. Um, we often recommend if they haven't been tied in already with birth to three, um, which as you know, is wonderful that families, you know, can be met at their home um, and, and have direct resources and assessments, um, you know, based on what the, the family is experiencing. I think it's great to see a patient in their their home setting as well, um, something that we don't get to do in the office, although with the introduction of telemedicine that has has helped to some degree on, on certain visits um, to be able to see kind of the home environment um, and, and what the behaviors may look like in that um, in that setting. Uh, our colleagues in developmental pediatrics um, can also be a resource for families, especially, um, you know, families often ask, you know, could this be autism? Is that part of the picture? Um, and so developmental pediatrics can be really helpful there. And we've had several different patients that we've collaborated on um, over even just the past few months. Um, and, and in the setting of, of autism, you know, you know, could applied uh, behavioral analysis or ABA therapy be worthwhile? And that's something that developmental peds can help connect with as well. Um, and then depending on the, the age of the child, um, psychology or psychiatry may be helpful. Certainly can be challenging to find a psychiatrist for, for young children, for older children too, for that matter. Um, but I think even just reaching out to some of our psychiatry colleagues, um, you know, and getting their input has been helpful for some patients, um, even just, you know, in a more challenging case to help, you know, review options and next steps. Um, so they can be another, another great resource. And then the schools often have great supports too, depending again on the age of the child, um, whether it's the school psychologist or social worker, um, whether, you know, the special education supports. Um, and so they can also be helpful in, you know, most families would love to have their child in a school environment. Um, and so we try our best to, to help make that happen and in an environment that they feel comfortable. And then this brings us to, you know, the pharmacologic options. Um, and, you know, this is something that, you know, we are still as a, a pain and palliative community um, working to learn more about. I mean, it's something that, you know, if you do a, a lit search, you may find only a few studies and even those are largely case reports. Um, and so it can be hard to, to know what to choose. Um, or to start with as a, as a first-line therapy. Um, and so hopefully these next slides will, will provide some, some input there. We usually would start or consider um, pharmacologic therapy. One, obviously the, the parents would have to be um, in agreement with that. Um, and usually it's when there's three or more prolonged episodes per week. And so that obviously can be very distressing um, for families. And, and oftentimes it's way more than that. You know, I have patients um, multiple times a day, sometimes for hours that, that families will, um, will share, you know, are really difficult for, for the patient. You know, as with many other medications, we start, you know, at a low dose and titrate very slowly, um, being mindful that they often are on other medications, that we don't want any interactions, um, certainly. And so, you know, and, and if they were started on another medication by a different specialty, we often would check in and say, this is something that we were hoping to start, you know, does that make sense from, from your perspective so we can work together? Um, we monitor you know, vitals, certainly if they're in the hospital. Um, fatigue is the most common side effect, you know, as you would imagine, if 
you know, you're trying to calm some overstimulation, you'll also calm um, the body in other ways. And so fatigue is the, the you know, biggest side effect that we see. So I'll break it up here a little bit because our approach for neonates is different than our approach for, you know, older kids. Um, and historically in the, in the NICU environment, um, clonidine is what we usually would start with um, as a first medication. Um, and then gabapentin would be next. Um, occasionally for patients who really have refractory symptoms, they can be on, on both. Um, we usually also would, you know, in the same line of the, the clonidine, prefer dexmedetomidine over um, the benzodiazepines at this point, just based on the literature um, that's concerning for the cognitive impact of benzodiazepines over time. You know, I like to note that, that even though I think we worry about the benzodiazepines too, um, having a child who's, you know, chronically uncomfortable and irritable is also, you know, not something that we want for brain development. So it's finding that balance um, to, to help with, with comfort. But we have had, you know, even just in the more recent years, um, an improved level, I think, of, of comfort and efficacy with the use of dexmedetomidine in the, the NICU patients. And then when we talk with families, we also share, you know, this isn't something that we envision your child being on forever, especially in the NICU. It's rare that they need to continue these medications after they've been discharged. Um, so our hope is that we can wean off of them. And after a patient is in a you know, relatively stable state um, for um, a, a number of days to weeks or so, um, you know, we will try kind of weaning down on the dose and seeing how they do. And certainly if they're discomfort increases, then we would reevaluate and potentially, you know, increase the dose back up. But we do have many patients that once we start to wean, it really tolerate that well. And then for older infants and children, um, we use tend to use gabapentin um, more than clonidine as a first line, although we do use clonidine as well. Um, there's a slightly more data in the gabapentin realm. Again, fatigue comes up as the, the biggest side effect. Um, we do usually start with dosing at nighttime to use this in our favor because many of these patients have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Um, some of the older children and school-aged children may report kind of a brain fog um, feeling with gabapentin, um, but usually for the children who have the neuroirritability, it's more of a, a calming impact. Um, amitriptyline can also be considered as a, a TCA um, for um, more refractory symptoms if the clonidine and, and gabapentin are ineffective. Um, and then for some patients, we also may try benzodiazepines, um, CBD or THC, which you know, has become more common. Um, and then as a last line, which we rarely use and would only be in certain, you know, certain circumstances would be an, an opioid. And so the gabapentinoids, um, you know, as I mentioned for the, the older kids, we, you know, have still limited understanding of exactly how they work, um, obviously started as an anti-epileptic medication, um, though not used for that very often anymore. Um, but the thought is that it reduces the, some of the excitatory neurotransmitters. The metabolism in younger children um, can vary, and so you may need higher doses than you would initially expect. Um, and we often start at five mg per keg um, at nighttime um, and then advance every three days or so if they're an outpatient. We may be more aggressive inpatient, especially if there's been, um, you know, an, a more severe um, demonstration of, of symptoms. And again, just to highlight the limitations of the research that's out there, um, this is one study that was done, but now is really becoming outdated. Um, and we're looking um, at clonidine at, at the use of the use of clonidine, excuse me, at Connecticut Children's. Um, but again, you know, this is over a time frame that we're already, I think, evolving. Um, you know, what what we did in 2016, I think, is different than what we're already doing now. Um, because of, of improvements that we see with certain changes or, or um, different pieces, you know, different adding different medications or the response of one over the other. But I do think, and I would would um, hypothesize that since this time, the amount of gabapentin um, among different hospitals would have increased dramatically. 
And then pregabalin, so obviously in the same family, um, we often use gabapentin first um, because the pregabalin or Lyrica has you know, generally significantly higher cost. Um, we often start with once daily dosing and then increase to, to twice a day. Um, but for some patients, for whatever reason, they respond more favorably to the pregabalin than the gabapentin. And then the, the clonidine um, is an alpha-2 um, agonist. Um, it has some analgesic properties, um, although again, with many of these you know, medications, um, we you know, have a, a, a theory um, on how they all work, um, although you know, there, there's variation even from patient to patient on how effective they are or what dose is needed. Um, we often will use clonidine as a bridge after patients are on dexmedetomidine, um, often in a NICU or PICU setting, um, and certainly the you know, biggest side effects that you would look at would be the hypotension and sedation. Um, the guanfacine may be an alternative if you know, the patient does seem over-sedated. In the clonidine dosing, um, we often start in the um, NICU based on the one microgram um, per kilo per dose Q6, um, and then adjust that every um, one to two days based on how the patient is responding. Um, outpatient, we do it a little bit differently, a little more conservatively, um, but you know, again, it tends to be tolerated pretty well since we're starting low um, and at nighttime. Um, and, and again, it often helps with sleep, which can be a, a struggle for many of these families. Uh, most patients, even though the clonidine, when they're outpatient, can be given every six hours, um, we often do three times a day dosing just because it, practically speaking, it's very hard, obviously, to do a, a medication four times a day. Um, and so we like to to find a, a plan that's more helpful, um, you know, that the families are able to, to stick to. You can also have PRN dosing if, you know, they have three doses, three standard doses during the day, um, and then have an extra one for those times when symptoms are, are very significant. And the clonidine patch is also can be a really great option for families. Um, we use this both in the NICU and in the older kids. Um, certainly, you want to be mindful of you know, skin permeability if there are any um, you know, issues with skin integrity or if they're too young, obviously, by gestational age, then the patch would not be a good option. Um, but some of our kids you know, have um, a significant sweating, in which case the patch would not be a good option. Um, but we do you know, have some it's a nice option for those who don't want to be adding another, um, you know, enteral medication. And we can occlude the patch in different increments um, to try to, to find the optimal dosing for, um, for a patient. Um, and one nice thing about it is when you are ready to wean, you can leave that same patch on for a 14-day period versus the normal seven days that you would change it. Um, and a lot of patients do really well with that. And, and after that 14-day period, you know, it's just gradually um, releasing less and less medication. And then by the time you take it off, um, the patient is doing well. And so the TCAs, um, again, you know, would be considered more of a, a third line, you know, medication, um, but especially in patients where you feel like there may be some visceral, visceral hyperalgesia um, can be another strategy to try. Um, sometimes the, you know, the patients um, will have had side effects from the other medications that may point you in this direction as well. And we are often asked, you know, if they're on an SSRI or an SNRI for, you know, other other symptoms, can you be on the, the TCA as well? Um, and I think in, in my experience, um, and you can. You obviously just want to be mindful um, of the the dosing and monitoring for side effects and not changing, you know, two medications at once. So, you know, if they're on a stable dose of an SSRI, um, then it's okay to gradually introduce the um, the amitriptyline and, you know, titrate um, slowly. But if there's, you know, if the patient has a history of, of any issues or interactions, um, then it may not, not be the best choice. And here's just a slide with some of the dosing. Um, again, this is from Julie Howard's article um, that I highlighted in the beginning. 
And then, as I mentioned, you know, for both our young ch- uh, young children and then older, you know, we do like to revisit. You know, is this medication working? Um, is has the patient improved to the point where it's worth trying to wean down on the dose and see how you know they may tolerate this? Um, if symptoms worsen, obviously you can always return to the lowest effective dose. And so I think families are often on board with trying, knowing that they can return to the dosing that was helpful for their for their child. Um, and so, you know, I, I tell them I don't, my hope is that you won't need this medication forever um, and that, you know, we'll continue to work with you to try to find um, you know, the least number of medications to achieve comfort. And then, with any of the medications weaning gradually, you know, it's not, and we counsel our patients, it's not something that you can just stop because um, generally we've, we've titrated the dose upwards. And so therefore we want to be mindful in reducing the dose as well. And even writing out a specific plan can be helpful um, in, you know, in your after visit summary or however you, you do it, or if it's a very, um, you know, complicated wean, if there are multiple medications and even creating a calendar can be helpful too. And then benzodiazepines, obviously, there can be um, a role for kind of more refractory cases. I think the concern would be sedation here, as well as polypharmacy, you know, and so keeping keeping those pieces in mind, also the development of tolerance. Um, And I have had some patients that, um, you know, instead of having a a calming impact, actually have a more excitatory response. And so keeping that um, in mind, too. But as a PRN option, it can be helpful um, for patients who, you know, who are struggling. Medical marijuana um, obviously has become more um, common, and I've had several patients anecdotally who really feel like there's been a night and day difference in their symptoms um, after the introduction of either CBD or THC. Um, And so, you know, we certify that a patient has a qualifying condition, um, and then the dispensary is actually the um, location that provides the dosing and the strain and reviews um, the specific plan with the patient. And opioids, as I mentioned, you know, we don't often use um, in, unless there is a, you know, reason to expect a more acute injury or process um, that will improve with time, because certainly chronic opioids, you know, can have their own, um, you know, issues and side effect profile and, and tolerance and, and, and such. And so um, I'd say we, we very rarely um, use these in the setting of, of neuroirritability. And if we do use them, it's, it's more likely going to be methadone just because of the um, kind of mixed uh, receptor activity um, that can be helpful for, for some of these patients. And then there may be, you know, a few other options depending on uh, the you know, strategies that you've tried or what the clinical scenario may be. Um, We usually start by, you know, optimizing that first medication um, before adding a second, Uh, but for some patients, they are on more than one. And so just to go back to, you know, the cases that I started with in in the beginning, um, I think the you know, just like to kind of summarize where we are now. Um, and I, I'd like to say that each of them has had a journey um, and it's can be very, um, you know, hard. Some of them now I've known for, for several years. Um, and, and so continuing to kind of revisit with the family how things are going and what's working and, and what's not working. Um, and so for our, you know, NICU baby, um, he was started on um, clonidine, um, and actually had you know a pretty favorable response. We were able to titrate up to the max dosing, um, but unlike many of the other babies, when we tried to wean, he really didn't tolerate that very well. Um, and so, in conversation with the the parents, they said, "Well, actually, we'd rather just keep it on," <laughs> you know. And so, um, so I saw him in follow up after he went home from the NICU, um, and the plan is for him basically to outgrow the dose over time um, as he gets bigger. Um, and so hopefully that will you know, continue to, to work uh, well for him. Um, our other patient um, is a bit more challenging. Um, she'd been on gabapentin and then we tried clonidine and she actually had a paradoxical reaction. So she was, um, you know, her behavior was even more challenging. Um, and so we, you know, weaned back off of that. You know, initially we tried just increasing the dose a little bit just to see if we hadn't found the right dose and that didn't work. Um, and so eventually weaned off and then tried the amitriptyline. Um, initially her response was 
wonderful. Um, it was, you know, parents were really encouraged. Um, but as with many of our kids, even if something works for, you know, a, a period of time, that doesn't mean it's going to last forever. And so we continue to work um, together to adjust the dosing and also find um, psychiatry supports, which is challenging for, you know, a, a toddler um, to, to try to, you know, best serve her. Uh, but this is a, an ongoing concern for family and, and again, supporting them through this and just being there and hearing their concerns um, is really helpful. And then again, last the last patient um, had a reassuring workup. Um, the gabapentin, the patient didn't tolerate, didn't like the taste, um, and so really um, wasn't going to work for her. Um, and so we switched to to triclonidine, um, and she really did benefit from that initially. Um, she's kind of had a dose adjusted multiple times over the past couple of years, um, but is in a good place right now. Again, I fully expect that she will have some times where things are more difficult and we'll have to go back to the drawing board. Um, and so that's to where, you know, um, you know, working together and, and with, you know, other consult consultants um, can be helpful too. And so in closing, I think the, the big pieces, you know, love more more data on this where I'm working on a project um, with one of the um, uh, NICU fellows, Colby Kellner, as well as um, Shabnan Linwala and um, and the pharmacy um, to try to look at clonidine use um, in our NICUs and, and to help guide better practice. Um, there's also, you know, discussions about being a resource for primary care um, because we know that this symptom can come up um, for our patients um, in a primary care setting and how do we best support providers there too. So here are some of my references. And again, here um, is my contact information. Please feel free to reach out anytime. This is something that I love learning more about and, and um, working with you to try to find a, a plan for um, your patients and families. So feel free anytime. And thank you to all of my colleagues um, who have been you know, so supportive. Um, and I you know, have learned so much from Bill um, as well as the other members of um, the teams that I work on. Um, and I continue to um, you know, grow with, with all of you and, and really feel so privileged to be part of Connecticut Children's team. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. Uh, <clears throat> we are absolutely lucky to have you with us, uh, such an expert in, and with kindness and uh, just uh, forward thinking. Really, truly appreciate having you here. Uh, we have a number of comments and questions. For, uh, first one is from Jennifer. Uh, how can ABA help in the case of neuroirritability since it does not address physiologic, physiological aspects of the disease? Um, her, her comment is we need to be careful about reducing behavior that has a physiological cost to ensure that the underlying causes are properly treated first. In other words, don't we need to see the behavioral responses in some children in order to assay, assess the pain level? Yeah, and so I wouldn't say that ABA therapy is you know, going to be a, an, an answer here. I think it's when it's indicated. Um, it's not for, for all um, you know, not for all families or, or patients. Um, I agree, we have to be careful with what we what we recommend, but many patients have more than one um, element of their presentation. And so, you know, a combined approach can be helpful for some of these children. Um, but I agree, it's something that, you know, we have to be, be mindful of, and especially in talking with the family for, uh, you know, in, in terms of what we recommend and what we pursue. And that's why we rely on, you know, colleagues in other specialties as well. Mary Simon, uh, how do we refer outpatients out to you? What is the wait time to get into your clinic? So it depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I think we try um, as best we can, especially depending on the scenario, um, we have different pathways that patients may come in through. Um, if it's through the pain department, um, we, you know, often meet as teams. So that can include psychology and um, physical therapy as well. And there can be a long wait time for, for some of those patients. Um, if it's, you know, more of a focused visit, we have kind of 60 minute non-team initial visits and you generally can get patients in much sooner. Um, and if there are any urgent issues, you know, reach out and we are happy to provide, you know, support 
kind of before we even meet the patient, some suggestions and um, and sometimes even starting, you know, medication or discussing a, a dosing. Um, if, if this is a question from a primary care provider, you know, we're happy to, to help partner with you um, before we even see the patient just to get something going so that we're not, um, you know, waiting and waiting weeks to months. Um, but if there's an urgent issue, let us know and we're, we try our best to get you in or to get the patients in in a reasonable time frame. From Dr. Zellner, right? This, this is for Bill. So Bill started his training in a pediatric cardiology. He was a fellow. I think I knew that. Um, but maybe the stethoscope threw him off track. So thank you, Ed, for sharing that with us. Um, also from Ed, one of the hallmarks of these irritability states is episodic and or concomitant autonomic hyperactivity. The literature lacks identification of cause for these autonomic changes, and there has been no definitive therapy recognized. What has your experience been with the autonomic components? Have you developed an approach to them? So thank you for that question. I do think we see an, an overlap with many of our different patients, especially if there's been, um, you know, neurologic injury. Um, and so I think, you know, many of the medications that we use um, can be helpful kind of in both settings um, for, you know, a, a dysautonomia, whether it's gabapentin, clonidine. Um, and so we often will work with, you know, neurology or different different teams to, to try to create a plan um, for, you know, episodic, um, you know, elements. Sometimes, you know, things, more conservative therapies even are helpful. Things like ibuprofen or acetaminophen can help to, to take the edge off of some of those symptoms. And having PRNs available, you know, whether it's a benzodiazepine or clonidine, something along those lines. Um, you know, so some of these patients really benefit from having, um, you know, a, a plan um, outlined, you know, try this first. If that doesn't work, then try this and, and kind of moving down the line um, with the hope of using the most conservative therapy first. Um, but it often is a, a combination and it can be very challenging to find that right spot. Gabapentinoids have become more widely used, perhaps because of the others have not been shown to be better than placebo. And the gabapentinoids have not been subjected to randomized clinical trials for these disorders. I think that's where I guess a comment and a question. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I wish we had more more data. As I as I've said, I think it's um, something that you know we do rely on others' experience. You know, in, in the pain side, we have a um, complex rounds every week where we talk to each other about what's worked, what hasn't worked, what can we try. Um, and so, you know, some of it is really learning from others and, and similar patient scenarios. Um, but yes, I wish we had more that we could you know, rely on to concretely say, this is the context and this is the dose. Um, but a lot of it, in, and I'll share with families, you know, a lot of this is something we have, you know, is a, is a trial. Um, and if it isn't helping, then we need to revisit our plan and, and try something different. I don't, you know, put patients on medications for long periods of time without seeing at least a, an inkling um, that it's improving. Last question is, um, have, have you used uh, uh, valproic acid for these disorders? So I have not. Um, I, th I think there are some in neurology um, who may have, have tried valproic acid, but that's not something that, that I'm using right now. Okay. And there are a couple more questions from Ed, which we'll send to you directly. Um, Claire, thank you very much. Uh, this was uh, very well attended and well received. Really appreciated you. You taught, taught me something I didn't know, which is always good when you finish grand rounds, and so I'm a little bit smarter or less foolish, I guess, either way. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bill, for, uh, for your division and having us, and uh, for all of you for being here. Have a, a great uh, week, and uh, uh, be safe, and thank you for our teams out there for providing care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.